The fellows have some Bibles. They're going to make their way back down the aisles. If you'll get their attention, if you need a copy of the Scriptures, they'll get one to you. So you can follow with us as we look at John 18 and a portion of John 19. As we continue our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Meet Your Maker. We're going through the Gospel of John. We are closing in on the end of the Gospel of John. Today, John chapter 18. During the smoldering summer of 1961, archaeologists were excavating an ancient theater in Caesarea. Caesarea was the Mediterranean port that served as the Roman capital in Palestine. And as they were excavating, they unearthed a two-by-three-foot stone that bore some kind of inscription. The man was, who was in charge of the dig cleaned out the lettering with a brush, and suddenly his eyes widened and a smile came on his face. The left third of the inscription had been chipped away, but he was able to quickly reconstruct what it said. It was written in Latin words that had been cut into the stone in three-inch lettering and translated, says, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. Now, the Tiberium evidently was some kind of public structure that was named in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And that simple but proud sentence in 1961 discovered marked the first archaeological evidence of the existence of Pontius Pilate. Pilate's name is repeated in masses every day throughout the world, almost continually. And each Sunday, by nearly a billion people who cite the Apostles' Creed. Many of you know that the Apostles' Creed has a line in it that says, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate. And so this man's name has become famous, infamous, undoubtedly the most well-known Roman of them all, for many people know little about a Caesar or an Augustus or a Nero, but many, in fact, almost everyone has heard of Pontius Pilate. Now, we're going to continue looking at the story then of the betrayal and the trial and the crucifixion next, next week of Jesus. And I remind you of this as we do that. Why do I talk about these details with regard to Pontius Pilate? And I'm going to give you a bunch more in just a bit. Well, it's for this reason, that when we read the narratives, the stories that are given to us in the Bible, and fully two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. It's a story being narrated by someone else. Fully two-thirds of your Bible is like we find in the Gospel of John, a story about what happened to other people in this case, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you read those narratives, we don't seek to just come away with, wow, that's interesting that that happened to those people back then. But rather, we want to make application of ourselves in the here and now. And as we teach in our class that I'm doing on Wednesdays, how to get the most out of your Bible, we do that by asking ourselves, what does this story tell us about people? And what does this story tell us about God? 
Because even though we're removed by 2,000 years from the original events that are recorded in John 18 and 19, the truth of the matter is people are still the same. And God is still the same. And that is why every passage in your Bible, even telling the story, narrating the story of what happened to other people, applies to you and me. And that's why the Bible can say of itself, all Scripture is useful, profitable, for teaching and for rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And so we want to know about this man, Pilate, and what this story tells us about him, but most important, what it says about us as well. And so we're going to look at the details of this man, Pontius Pilate, whose name many of us know, but whose background perhaps we do not. Pilate married a woman named Claudia. And Claudia was the granddaughter of someone named Augustus. You may remember the name Augustus, Caesar Augustus. We find him in Luke chapter 2. Luke tells us that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for all the world to be taxed. And Pilate pursued and married the emperor's granddaughter. Now that was a wise career move because it introduced him to a circle of very powerful and influential people. It might also tell us something about Pilate's character. Because in order to pursue Claudia, Pilate had to befriend her mother. Well, her mother, Augustus' daughter, was so depraved that even her own father eventually banished her from Rome. And thereafter, whenever her name was mentioned in Augustus' presence, he would say, I wish I had died childless. Now, that was Pilate's mother-in-law, whom he'd befriended in order to marry into that family. And because of that connection, he was able to establish, by marrying into this prominent Roman family, he eventually came to govern the Roman province that's called Judea. Pilate ruled as prefect, as the inscription that was discovered in Caesarea says. He ruled as prefect in Judea from the years 26 to 36 A.D. That's the second longest tenure of any first century Roman governor in Palestine. The length of time that he ruled shows that the common understanding about Pilate is probably incorrect. The common understanding is that he was sort of a buffoon, that he made a ton of mistakes, and he vacillated. Well, indeed, he was confused as to what to do, as we will see, but he had good reason to be troubled. He was between the proverbial rock and a hard place, as we'll see in a moment. But he really would not have been able to rule as long as he did because Tiberius was an exacting emperor. And he required that those who worked under him do their work well. That Pilate survived as long as he did as testimony to, in fact, his competence. But he did find governing Judea to be a very difficult experience. And aside from Pilate's familiar role on Good Friday, there are four other incidents that he was involved in that are reported by first century historians. Did you all know we have first century historians outside of the Bible who report on some of the events in the Bible and some of the people in the Bible? People like Josephus and people like Philo. And you put their stories together and you see some of the episodes in the life of this man Pilate that we read about in John 18 and 19. 
In what became known as the Affair of the Roman Standards, Pilate's troops once marched into Jerusalem and they were carrying flags that had standards emblazoned upon them with the emperor's image. And that action provoked a five-day mass demonstration by Jews at the provincial capital in Caesarea. They protested those images as a violation of Jewish law concerning engraved images back in the book of Exodus. And in that episode, Pilate finally relented and he ordered the offensive standards removed. Later in Pilate's rule, he built an aqueduct to convey water near Bethlehem to improve Jerusalem's water supply. But he angered many of the people in Jerusalem because he paid for that system with money from the temple treasury. That sparked another riot. And he had to put it down with bloodshed. Now, just as a quick aside, you say, well, that was pretty rotten of him to do. But the truth is, he undoubtedly had to have gotten permission from the Jewish leaders in order to do that. And the fact is, those aqueducts ran under the temple mount. And so it was the people who rioted, but he had actually undoubtedly gotten permission from their leaders. Nonetheless, an uneasy relationship between Pilate and the people that he governed. Here's another episode in his life that created tension between himself and the people that he ruled. On one occasion, Pilate set up a number of golden shields in his Jerusalem headquarters. And unlike those standards, those flags that the soldiers had paraded through the streets years earlier, these bore no images whatever. They had a bare inscription of dedication to the emperor Tiberius. And yet the people and their spokesman, a fellow named Herod the Tetrarch, not Herod the Great, but another Herod that you read about in Scripture, Herod the Tetrarch protested even those imageless shields. And this time Pilate refused to remove them. Herod, who was a political rival of, of Pilate, wrote a letter to the emperor Tiberius. And he protested what, uh, what um, Pilate was doing. And Tiberius wrote a stern letter back to uh, Pilate, warning him not to engage in riling up the Jew his Jewish subjects any further. And it was only a few months after that bizarre affair that Pilate makes his entry on the stage of history in the pages of Scripture. Now think about being Pilate under those circumstances. You have been warned by the emperor, don't get these people riled up again. And now the Jewish religious leaders bring to you what they are call, who they are calling a rabble rouser. As we are going to see, they make a charge against Jesus that he is a rival to Rome. He claims to be a king. And so they put Pilate indeed in that proverbial, between that proverbial rock and a hard place. There's a fourth episode in Pilate's life that takes place after what we're going to read in John 18 and 19. It takes us to events three years after Good Friday. And it doesn't involve an uprising by the Jews, but rather by half-breed Jews called Samaritans in your New Testament. And Pilate had a similar confrontation with them that he had had several times with the Jewish population 
This time, because they were doing a march to Mount Gerizim, their holy mountain, he was afraid that there was going to be an uprising. He had soldiers confront them, and it ended up being a bloodbath. The Samaritans protested to Rome. Pilate was summoned back to Rome in 36 A.D. And before he could be tried, before the one who had appointed him, Tiberius, Tiberius died. And that's the last we hear about Pilate. The most famous episode in his life is found in John chapters 18 and 19. As this man has a rendezvous with destiny, appointed by Almighty God to play a significant role in his plan of redemption as Jesus Christ fulfills the plan and the mission for which he came to earth. If you care to jot down Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 tells us one more thing in Scripture about this man Pilate. It says there, as Jesus is speaking, he refers to those worshipers whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. We don't know what that was, but Jesus refers to a time when Pilate apparently killed Jewish worshipers who were offering sacrifice in Luke chapter 13. And now on April 3rd of 32 AD, Jesus Christ stands before this man Pilate with all of the intrigue that goes with that background of his relationship with Jesus' Jewish accusers. And as we tell the story, we're going to draw from each of the four Gospels and John's account in John 18 and 19. Let's read together in verse 28 of John 18. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas, that is the high priest of the Jews, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early in the morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Let me just comment here. There were certain things the Jews could not do and still be able to engage in worship. And one of those was to go into the dwelling of a Gentile. And so they stayed out in the court. This is an example of things they could not do and still be eligible to worship. Verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Now, this is a strange exchange. They drag Jesus to Pilate and they want Pilate to condemn Jesus to death. And they seem taken by surprise when Pilate asked what the charge is. Many commentators have speculated that there was a prearrangement between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. They would bring Jesus, having pronounced the death sentence upon him, and Pilate would, in effect, rubber stamp it. And Pilate appears to be going back on his word. Now, one of the reasons that most believe, as I do, they had a prearrangement. They had an agreement. It's because you remember a few weeks ago we looked at Jesus' arrest in the garden and there was, the Bible tells us, a detachment, a cohort of soldiers that came with Judas to arrest Jesus. They had to go to Pilate to get that cohort of soldiers. Pilate knew what they were undertaking. They had made an arrangement. Now they bring Jesus to him and instead of rubber stamping their decision that he should be put to death, he says, what is the charge? We find elsewhere that Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus. 
and sent word to Pilate saying, do not condemn this man. He's a righteous man. One commentator speculates that Pilate and Claudia were probably together that night, even though she didn't live in Jerusalem, she was there with him on the evening that Jesus was arrested. And Claudia would have known that there was a visit from Caiaphas, the high priest, or some delegation as they plotted together against Jesus. So when she went to bed that night, her thoughts are on Jesus. And so it's quite understandable she dreamed of him. And there was a sense of foreboding for her. And she awoke the next morning to find that Pilate had already gone for an early morning meeting. And she knew what business was at hand. She quickly wrote him a message that Matthew records for us. Don't condemn him. He's a righteous man. And Pilate apparently attached credibility to that dream. It was superstitious. The Romans were superstitious. And he therefore began to back out on his prearranged agreement with the Jews. And now he wants a formal investigation of what the charge is against Jesus. In verse 31, here's what we read. Pilate said... Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. Now in what follows, notice that John leaves no doubt whatsoever as to who is in charge of this whole situation. Notice verse 32. This happened so that the words of Jesus, the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. What does this say about people? What does this say about God? Well, one of the things you see that this story tells you about God is that God is always in control of every situation. Jesus is in complete control of this situation. Jesus has predicted what kind of death he would die. He will be lifted up, John chapter 3 tells us. He said in John chapter 10, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Being lifted up was a reference to his dying in crucifixion as opposed to stoning. In order for Jesus to be executed by crucifixion, it had to involve a Roman sentence, not a Jewish sentence. And so Pilate's involvement is fulfilling what Jesus had predicted. The charge that they brought against Jesus to Pilate was that of blasphemy. They said that Jesus had blasphemed the God of the Jews by claiming to be the Son of God. Now think about being Pilate, this political ruler. You're not a, you're not a Jewish man. You care very little for this so-called charge of blasphemy. What did this have to do with the Roman court? But there was also the charge of treason, and that was a serious charge. Jesus had claimed to be a king, and so verse 33 says. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, apparently in disgust. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. Literally, it says, betrayed you to me. What is it you have done? He asked Jesus. And Jesus says, my kingdom, verse 36, is not of this world. Now notice Jesus does not say my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. He's saying that my kingdom has its origin in a place other than this world, and it operates according to principles other than those of the world. 
And then Jesus adds, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. In essence, Jesus is saying this to this political ruler. Pilate, understand, I am a king. But right now my kingdom is no political or military threat to Rome. And what's the crux of the whole issue? Well, it's found in verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. The crux of the issue with Jesus is and always has been, what do you believe? And Pilate was the consummate cynic. And he replies to this famously in verse 38. What is truth? And with the last part of verse 38, this trial of Jesus, before this Roman governor comes to an end. There were actually four parts to any Roman trial. There was the indictment, the examination, the defense, and the verdict. And as you examine all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it all comes to an end with the verdict. With this, verse 38, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. He is innocent. Well, why then doesn't Pilate release him? And there's only one answer. And it goes back to what we saw at the beginning. Fear. Fear of inciting the mob. Fear of being reported back to the emperor. He is seized by fear. He feared the Jews. He feared the mob outside his door. And so instead he tries two mediating maneuvers. In verse 39, here's what he says. But is it your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover? It is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Well, that is ironic in the extreme, isn't it? Jesus is being brought before this political ruler by the religious leaders on the charge to him that he claims to be a king. He's a threat to you. But now they're willing to release one who has already shown himself to be a threat. He's engaged in an insurrection already. It shows that their hatred of Jesus is so deep that they will do anything and cut a deal with anyone in order to crucify the Lord of glory. The custom was for the people to be able to display an act of mercy on this holy day, releasing one who was condemned. And Pilate no doubt thought that Barabbas was hated by the Jews as an insurrectionist. He'd been rocking the boat. He'd been creating problems for everybody. Surely they would not call for the murderer to be released. But he didn't understand the depth of the disdain and hatred that they had for Jesus Christ. An article several years ago reported that prisoners on death row have a hard time not focusing on the events that are going to take place at the end of their lives. In states that have used the gas chamber, for example, prisoners would actually practice holding their breath 
for as long as they could because they knew the point would come when to exhale and inhale again would end their lives. It was all pointless, but that's what was going through their heads. Now imagine being Barabbas. And you're in the cell. And you hear the angry mob outside. And they're yelling your name. And you think the time has come. And a soldier comes. And he unlocks the cell door. And he says, you go free. Donald Gray Barnhouse who's now with the Lord, but he was the pastor for many years of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. That's right, 10th. And he said this, Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God to be poured upon me. I deserve the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. He was delivered for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak, says Barnhouse, of the substitutionary atonement. Christ is my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. And that is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in three phrases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. And there is nothing left for me but his heaven. Thanks be to God. And they said, give us Barabbas. And Barabbas is released. And Jesus was condemned to take his place. When Pilate, undoubtedly surprised by the response of the crowd, saw that they were so bloodthirsty that they were willing to condemn an innocent man, he tries a second mediating solution. The first one is, here's Barabbas. He figures they'll let Jesus go free. doesn't happen. So he tries a second mediating solution. Chapter 19 and verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, in the Roman legal system, there were three kinds of floggings. And they went from less severe to the most severe, and the most severe would leave the victim at the point of death. Jesus, indeed, underwent the most severe flogging. But if you put the four accounts of the Gospels together, Jesus was flogged twice. This is the first of the two. This was the less severe. Nonetheless, you are beaten and you are bruised. And so we read in verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Here these guys are, representing common humanity that hates its creator. And they're punching the Lord of glory in the face. What does this say about us? What does it say about God? Do not look at these people and say, that's not me. If you were there but for the grace of God, so go you, and so go I. And they placed this crown of thorns made out of 
date palms. The thorns would sometimes grow to 12 inches. And they press it upon the head of their creator. There have been archaeological digs in the area where this took place. Believe it or not, they have found inscriptions that show the scorekeeping for the soldiers' games. As they poked fun at Jesus for claiming to be a king, one of the inscriptions that they have uncovered for these games was called the king's game. They played a game and they, the Bible tells us cast lots as they belittled and beat Jesus Christ. And Pilate undoubtedly believed if he could just satisfy their bloodlust without killing him, then their anger would give way to pity. And so after this flogging, we read in verse 4. Notice verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And if you can picture Jesus there, having been beaten, crown of thorns, a pitiful spectacle, bloody, bruised, and swollen. And Pilate assumes at this point there will be some pity for him. But instead, verse 6 says this, As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, as soon as they saw him, they shout, Crucify! Crucify! No pity breaks forth as they see Jesus' bloodied and bruised face. They cry all the more for his death. And Pilate answers finally in frustration in verse 6, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Verse 7, the Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Apparently, we're getting nowhere with the threat that Jesus is claiming to be a king. And so they now say, he claims to be the son of God. And Pilate's response shows that he is fearful. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And I've told you the Romans were superstitious. He was already concerned because of his wife's dream. And now he's suddenly gripped with fear because he heard for the first time this one claimed to be the Son of God. In his mind, undoubtedly, as a Roman who worshipped many gods, he thought the son of one of the gods. And in verse 9, it says, he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. And note the pompous response of Pilate. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Do you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus is saying to this man who is drunk with power, who has people cower in his presence, Jesus Christ does not cower before him. 
And that's why Paul, just as an aside, the Apostle Paul later in the book of 1 Timothy will say to his young, timid, fearful protege, Timothy, Timothy, be strong in the Lord. As you follow Christ Jesus, who, quotes, gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Jesus stands there and says, you have no power over me. And here's what he's saying to him. You're accomplishing the will of my father, just like Caiaphas, the high priest, who brought me here. Even though you're accomplishing the will of my father, you're still guilty. Now, to be sure, Caiaphas bears more guilt. He should have known, but you're guilty too, Pilate. And then comes the climax of the trial in verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. That's the trump card. You let this guy go, and there's going to be a letter to the emperor. And you will no longer be a friend of Caesar. To be a friend of Caesar meant everything to those in the political hierarchy. He had already had run-ins with the emperor. Remember, the emperor had warned him, don't stir up another insurrection. And so now they play that trump card. In Jesus' day, there was a man named Sejanus who was the head of the Praetorian Guard of Caesar. We learn from history that the closer a man was to Sejanus, the more favor he had with Caesar. And Pilate was a friend of Sejanus. And Pilate undoubtedly had secured friend of Caesar status because of his relationship with Sejanus. But worse, he rounded up friends of Sejanus, did Tiberius at one point, and he had them executed because Sejanus at one point fell out of favor. And six months later, the same Jews who had gone over Pilate's head and petitioned Tiberius before said, you're not really a friend of Caesar, are you? And Pilate did not miss that threat. We're going to report this to Caesar. He'll frown at your inaction because of this supposed king, this rival to Caesar. And just like he had Sejanus, who at one point had been his closest advisor, just like he had him killed, you will meet your fate. Verse 13. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out. And sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Jesus is handed over to be crucified at the very time that animals are being slaughtered for the Passover. And the irony runs very deep throughout the story. As these religious leaders stand outside the court and Pilate has to bring his judgment seat out there because of their religious scruples. They don't want to be defiled, but here they are conspiring against an innocent man and not just any man, 
but God himself come as man to secure the salvation of all men. And they have the audacity, people who are steeped in the first part of the book, the Old Testament, to say we have no king but Caesar. Because these are people who knew passages like Psalm number 2, which tells God's people, don't align yourself with the heathen, with the pagan nations. Here they are now aligning themselves with a pagan nation. And Psalm 2 is a psalm about Messiah. And here's how the words go. Why do the nations conspire the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. Their rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Throw off their fetters. In other words, we will not have the anointed one of God rule over us. And notice God's response in Psalm 2. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And these religious leaders knew that about the anointed one. And yet they aligned themselves with the court of Rome. And they said, we will not have the anointed one of God rule over us. Condemn him, kill him. And in that very act, they fulfilled the purposes of God. So that now the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is King of kings and Lord of lords. What does this tell us about ourselves? What does this tell us about God? In your outline, quickly, as we conclude, what does it tell us about ourselves? In Pilate, we see that many people are cynics without a moral foundation. When Pilate heard Jesus speak of truth, he asked and discussed what is truth. And the implication of the question is there is no truth. Follow what you determine. That's the only truth there is. Now, friends, is that not the worldview of society today? There is no truth. I have my truth. You have your truth. It's a world filled with people who are aimless, without foundation, drifting like sand in the desert. The mantra of our culture is, truth is what you believe at the moment. And our world has missed the message of Jesus Christ. We began our study of the Gospel of John back many months ago with the clear statement that Jesus is the Word of God. In Jesus Christ, God's message has come into history. And throughout John's Gospel, we've seen that it's a message of truth such that Jesus can say in chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The message of God, a message of truth, is revealed and therefore it's objective. It's there for all to see. What is truth? Cynical culture? Look to Christ and His Word and you will know truth. 
Pilate represents the cynicism of our culture. But notice, secondly, many people like Pilate are pragmatists who act only for self-interest. Pilate did not approach this saying, what shall I do that's right? He approached it trying to figure out what was best for him. His chief concern was how he was going to save himself. He began his political career by asking, how can I climb the ladder of power and success? And now at this juncture in his career, he only wanted to save his job and ultimately his life. He was the consummate pragmatist. He was willing to condemn an innocent man for his own convenience. To put it another way, he lived for the principle, what's in it for me? What does this say about us? We have that temptation, do we not? Most people in our culture live for what's in it for me. Why do fathers abandon their children? Because there's not enough in it for them. It's not working out the way they want. Why are families breaking apart? Why are churches suffering for a dearth of people who are willing to sacrifice themselves following the Lord who sacrificed himself. Why? Because we ask the question, what's in it for me? What does it say about us? Pilate represents a third thing. The many people in our culture who are victims, you notice in quotes, and make excuse, or in italics, and make excuses for sin. In Matthew's account of this trial, after Pilate had pronounced Jesus' innocence three times, as he prepared to sentence this innocent man to death, he called for a basin of water and there symbolically washed his hands, declaring himself to be innocent of this man's blood. What's Pilate saying? It's not my fault. What else could I do? We live in a culture of people who refuse to take responsibility for their own sin before a holy God. And it goes back to the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God came to Eve and he said, Eve, what have you done? And Eve said, the serpent. Adam, what have you done? The woman. Ultimately pointing back to God. Psalm 2, which I quoted moments ago, ends with counsel to the kings of the earth who conspire against the Lord and his anointed. It says this, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What does it say about us? This is a picture of an ancient man that shows us what modern people are like. And God says, despite what you are like, you are like, I am like, Pilate is like, here's what I'm like. I took that suffering for you. I came to die for you. In contrast to what we are like, there's what he is like. And he is gracious and merciful and loving and faithful. And he offers the gift 
of himself to you. He planned everything that happened in that scenario. He uses evil men for his ultimately good ends. And his ultimately good end is to offer you salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus was crucified that very day after that mock trial. But he was crucified as no accident of history. No victim ultimately of injustice. It was the plan of Almighty God for you. So what do you do then with Jesus? You bow before him as King of kings and Lord of lords. You receive the gift of salvation that he alone can give to you. And how do you do that? You do this. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize what Jesus Christ did for you in dying on the cross. Paying the penalty for the sin that belonged to you and me. You repent of your sin. You say you are Lord, you are King, you are God. And I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to any longer go my own way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. As we do that... You receive Jesus Christ on the command of Almighty God. You bow before him as your Lord. And you do not trifle with him and say, I'll think about it. You don't know if you'll last the rest of this day. But this is your God who in love commands you to bow before him and offers to you the sacrifice that he's made on your behalf. Let's bow before our God. Oh, Lord God. This is such a disturbing picture that is given us in the pages of your word. Lord, it disturbs my soul as I look at this man, Pilate, because in him I see myself. I know, Lord, that I am prone to make excuses and proclaim myself a victim. I know, Lord, that I pursue my self-interest rather than your interest and the interests of others. I know, Lord, that there are times where I try to make up my own truth rather than follow your truth. Lord, it's disturbing. And at the same time, it's blessed because we see not just the picture of the cynic, the victim, the pragmatist in Pilate, but we see this awesome picture of the God who made us and the Savior who loves us. And I thank you that because of Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf and his love for us, that I'm different now. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I will be. But I'm different than where I was. And that's only because of you and your work in my heart to change me from being a cynic and a pragmatist Lord, it is you and you alone who make this difference in the hearts of people. 
I pray that as we look at this disturbing picture of ourselves, but at the same time this marvelous portrait of who you are in Jesus, that I, that we will be moved to greater love, affection, and service for you, our Lord and God. I pray that right now your people are confessing our sins, Lord, to you of self-interest, of cynicism, of the kinds of things that keep us from being what you have made us to be. And I pray for anyone here who has never received the gift of salvation that is offered in Jesus, that right now they are praying from their heart to you to acknowledge their sin, acknowledge him as the sin bearer, and asking him to forgive them and to change them. We love you, Lord God, because you have first loved us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.